0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation the radio show that tells the extraordinary story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode Yearning to Breathe Free, The Immigrants Who Created Broadway, Part 2. Our last episode ended with George M. Cohan and Victor Herbert establishing the two main genres of the Broadway musical, the musical comedy and the operetta. Now my co-host Albert Evans picks up the story.
1: Meanwhile, among the masses of desperately poor Jewish immigrants who packed the rag boats coming to America, was a 5-year-old boy named Israel Balin. He was born in 1888 in a small shtetl near Russia's Siberian border, very much like the fictional town of Anatevka in fiddler on the roof. Only one memory of Russia would stick with him through his life, watching his family's house burn down during a pogrom as his mother held him and cried. When he was five, the Baleens, fearing for their lives, joined the mass Jewish exodus to the United States, where he was destined to become Irving Berlin, America's songwriter laureate.
3: Now, if you've seen the musical Ragtime, you know very well the world of Irving Berlin's childhood. Lower East Side pushcart peddlers and sweatshops, children dancing in the streets for pennies, large families crowded into airless tenements. Not a promising beginning, but like so many Jews of his generation, Berlin would go on to have a tremendous impact on American culture and in many ways define what it means to be an American.
1: Young Izzy Beline, he wasn't Irving Berlin yet, got a job selling newspapers, like in the musical Newsies. Izzy was one of those boys, but the few coins he brought home were not enough to pay for his keep. When he was 13, his father died, and not wishing to be a drain on the family economy, Izzy left home. He made the rounds of Bowery saloons, singing
3: for Loose Change, and although he didn't have much of a voice, he had plenty of energy and chutzpah, and he soon became a song-plugger, Albert, help us understand what exactly was a
1: song plugger. Well, it can mean several different things, but in this case, sheet music publishers paid him to sit in a vaudeville audience and applaud furiously for their songs, sometimes jumping up to spontaneously lead the crowd in a mass sing-along. The performers on stage would act very surprised and audience members would purchase the sheet music. And because sound recording
3: was still in its infancy, sheet music was the only way songwriters could make any money. Almost every home had a piano and someone who could play at least moderately well. And in the evening, the
1: family would gather around and sing the latest tunes. That was their entertainment. By 1907, Izzy had found a new job as a singing waiter in a Chinatown dive. Now, a rival saloon was pulling in crowds with an Italian novelty song written by their pianist and their bouncer. So, Izzy's boss commanded him and their pianist to write their own song. And they came up with a ditty they called Marie from sunny Italy. And Albert, I bet you know how that song goes. Well, I know how it begins, at least. My sweet Marie from sunny Italy, oh, how I do love you. Say that you'll love me, love me too forevermore I will be true and so on and so forth. They don't write them like that anymore. They do not. (laughs) They didn't write them like that then. (laughs) (laughs) It's really terrible but somehow it got published and on the title page our boy was credited as I, the initial I, Berlin and this new name was carefully chosen, really. It's close to his own name, but with a formal sort of Teutonic ring, which was very smart because the music business was run entirely by Germans.
3: Yes, and the song was enough of a success that Berlin decided to pursue songwriting full-time, which took a lot more chutzpah considering he couldn't read music and he could only play the piano in one key.
1: He wrote dozens of songs during this period, and he had some success. Then in 1911, he wrote a snappy march, he fitted it out with lyrics, and sold it to a producer who plugged it into his new show, which quickly flopped. But somehow the tune found its way to Al Jolson, the biggest star of the era who made it a hit. It sold half a million copies, then a million more, then two million, and with that one song, Irving Berlin became a songwriting superstar and a very wealthy young man.
0: Oh my honey, oh my honey Better hurry and let's meander Ain't you going, ain't you going To the leader man, ragged meter man Oh my honey, oh my honey Let me take you to Alexander's Grandstand Brass Band Ain't you coming along Come on in here, come on in here Alexander's Ragtime Band Come on in here, come on in here it's the best band in the land they can play a bugle call like you never heard before so natural that you want to go to war that's just the bestest band What am, my honey lamb come on along come on along let me take you by the hand up to the man up to the man who's the leader of the band and if you care to hear that Swanee River played in right time, come on and hear come on and in here, Alexander's right
1: time Band. Berlin made the transition from Tin Pan Alley to Broadway in 1914 with a full score for the show Watch Your Step, which starred dancing sensations Vernon and Irene Castle. Irving Berlin would go on to write 25 musicals and more than
3: 1,000 songs of which at least 100 have become standards, songs that have stayed alive in our culture, songs that you can't go to Starbucks without hearing.
1: Meanwhile, further uptown, another pioneering songwriter was coming of age. Jerome Kern was born in New York in Sutton Place, which at that time was the famous beer district. In contrast to Irving Berlin, Kern's parents were fairly prosperous German-Jewish immigrants, And Kern received a substantial musical education, first at the New York College of Music, and later with private tutors in Germany and in England, where he first began composing songs. Jerome Kern returned to New York in 1904, and over the next decade,
3: he would contribute songs to more than two dozen Broadway musicals and reviews. Now, musicals were so loosely put together in those days that they would often include tunes by various songwriting teams. Then in 1914, Kern was hired to write just a few songs for a show called The Girl from Utah. This was the first musical about Mormons, although certainly not the most famous. One of the songs in that show was called They Didn't Believe Me, and it would prove to be a groundbreaking step forward in the development of the Broadway musical. Great singer Mel Torme would later contend that when Jerome Kern composed this tune, he, quote, invented the popular song. Albert, explain to us what Mel's talking about. What made this song so revolutionary?
1: Well, most songs in those days were either waltzes in three, four time. One, one, two, two, three, one two, three, one, two, three. Or marches in two, four, like one, two, one, two. a Yankee doodle, Dan. Exactly, yeah. They were, everything was very peppy. Songs weren't, didn't really have room to expand lyrically. But Kern wrote They Didn't Believe Me in 4-4 four, four time, which made the a, a measure of music twice the length. For example, if he had written it in 2-4 time, it might have gone, and when I told them how beautiful you are, they didn't believe me. Not a lot of time to phrase and expand, whereas writing in four or four time. One, two, three, four, one. And when I told them how beautiful you are. You can actually make some, some notes a little bit longer, some a little bit shorter, and really phrase it according to the meaning of the song. More like the way we talk. The way we talk It's much more conversational. You're not just locked into this march rhythm.
3: Which makes the transition from the dialogue into the song so much more seamless.
1: Exactly. It makes it it much more, it belongs in a play more. Really for the first time, the the pace of the dialogue that precedes the song can now be carried into the song um, because there's time to phrase both of them conversationally. And this is, if I'm not wrong, the first love ballad in a musical written in
3: 4-4 time.
1: Yeah, it is. There were other types of songs written in 4-4, but they tended to be kind of jaunty little while strolling through the park one day, two, three, Which four. Which feels more like yeah. it's in two or something it's anyway. It's still yeah. very locked into a rhythm. And yeah. th- so this 4-4 innovation of Jerome Kern's really not only made the musical theater as we know it possible, but also pop music in general. People like Ella Fitzgerald do not feel like they're locked into what's written on the page. They can express themselves. And, I, when I
0: tell them, and I'm certainly going to tell them that you're the boy wife one day
1: This song was a revelation to a 16-year-old aspiring musician named George Gershwin. He was attending his aunt's wedding at a New York hotel when the band began to play They Didn't Believe Me, and George was completely captivated. Who wrote that, he asked. The answer inspired him to actually become a composer, and not for Tin Pan Alley, but just like Kern for the stage. Just a few years later, Gershwin was working as a rehearsal pianist on the Jerome Kern show, Miss 1917. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Broadway Nation will be
3: right back after this brief pause. hi this is David Armstrong and it's my great pleasure to welcome factor as a sponsor to Broadway nation this week this spring you can eat stress-free with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes you can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options including popular options like calorie smart keto protein plus or my personal choice vegan and veggie you can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do: head to FactorMeals.com/bn50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation. BN50 at FactorMeals.com/bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now.
2: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
3: In collaboration with book writers and lyricist Guy Bolton and P.G. Woodhouse, Kern began a series of musicals at the intimate 299-seat Princess Theater. Because of the Princess Theatre's small size, these productions aimed for an intimate and informal style of performance with plots and dialogue that critics of the day favorably compared to those of well-written non-musical plays. In fact, most of the Princess musicals were based on recently produced plays which provided a tangible framework for these musical versions to build upon. This established a pattern of musicals being based on pre-existing source material that would become standard practice for most musicals right up to this day. And because there were not enough seats at the Princess Theater to support star salaries, the writers could focus on telling coherent stories without having to tailor their shows to star performers who required their well-known personalities and abilities to be showcased. In an interview from The Period, Bolton explained what he and his collaborators were trying to accomplish. Our musical comedies depend as much upon plot and the development of their characters for success as upon their music, and they deal with subjects and peoples near to the audiences. We endeavor to make everything count. Every line, funny or serious, is supposed to help the plot continue to hold. Every song and lyric contribute to the action. The humor
2: is based on situations, not interjected by comedians.
1: These princess theater musicals, Very Good Eddie, Have a Heart, Oh Boy, Leave It to Jane, and Oh Lady Lady, all of them were popular hits in their time, but they're almost never performed today. They had enormous influence, however, on the next generation of musical theater creators. For example, in addition to inspiring
3: George Gershwin, 14-year-old Richard Rogers was so captivated by Kern's
1: music that he saw Very Good Eddie at least a dozen times. It has been said that the Princess musicals began the shift between an era of musical theater that was dominated by producers and performers to one in which the writers were the controlling force.
3: In many ways, the first two decades of the Broadway musical can be seen as a lively conversation and sometimes a fierce competition between the Irish, Jewish, and as we will see in an upcoming episode, the African-American creators. Each of them were responding to and building on the inventions and the
1: innovations of the others. This period reached a climax when in 1919, two first-generation Irish Americans, Joe McCarthy and Harry Tierney, created the biggest Broadway hit yet. It was called Irene. Irene would run 675 performances, incredible for the time, far longer than any previous show, and 18 years would go by before another show could break its record.
3: What was it that made Irene so incredibly successful? Well, McCarthy and Tierney, along with their book writer James Montgomery, had incorporated all the best practices from the shows that came before it. Like the Princess Theater shows, Irene was based on a pre-existing play, the plot was a modern rags-to-riches Cinderella story about a plucky Irish immigrant girl who falls in love with a wealthy Long Island society boy. And as the historian Ethan Morden has pointed out, her name is Irene O'Dare, which implies right from the start that she will dare to take a chance. She will dare to go out into the world and seize the day, like a female version of Cohan himself. And Irene's songs are built on the templates that Kern, Berlin, Herbert, and Cohan had established, and the songs are tied closely to the events of the story. The result is a delightful score which produced several hit songs, including the blockbuster Alice Blue Gown.
0: I once had a gown, it was almost new. Ah, oh, the daintiest thing. It was sweet Alice Blue. With little forget-me-nots placed here and there. And when I had it on, I walked on the air. And it wore, and it wore, and it wore. Till it went, and it wasn't no more. In my sweet when I first wandered down into town. I was both proud and shy, as I felt every eye. And in every shop window, I'd by. Then in manner...
1: Irene was well-crafted enough that even half a century later, it could be resurrected in a hit Broadway revival starring Debbie Reynolds during the nostalgia craze of the 1970s.
3: Now, Irene was McCarthy and Tierney's biggest Broadway hit, but it certainly was not their only one. During the teens, they worked together, and sometimes in collaboration with Italian immigrant Jimmy Monaco, to create a string of hit shows and timeless songs.
0: I'm always chasing
2: And then he'd row, row, row Way up the river he would row, row, row A hug he'd give her, why he'd kiss her an now And then she would tell him when He'd fool around and fool around And then he'd use again And then he'd row, row, row Way up that river he would row Oh, 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 oh And then he'd drop both his oars Take a few more on calls And then he'd row,
0: row, row didn't want to tell you I didn't want to tell you I think you're grand that's true yes I do deed I do you know I do I must tell you what I'm feeling the very mention of your name sends my heart reeling you
3: Of course, not all of the immigrants who went into the show business became composers, book writers, or lyricists, and writers were not even the only inventors of the musical. During this period, actually, the producers and star performers had an equal, if not even greater, impact on the content and style of musicals during this first decade. In those
1: days, producers were entrepreneurs who wielded total control over their shows and often oversaw every aspect of it. And although Broadway producers usually stay in the background, the names of three of the most powerful and successful early producers still have significant cultural currency more than a century later. Hammerstein, Schubert, and Ziegfeld. Oscar Hammerstein I was born to German-Jewish parents in an area of Prussia
3: that's now part of Poland. And he came to America in 1864. By the turn of the century, Oscar and his two sons, Willie and Arthur, would create a theatrical empire that included 12 New York theaters where they became major producers of opera, vaudeville, musical comedy, and operetta. However, their greatest contribution to the musical theater is, without a doubt, Willie's son, Oscar Hammerstein II, whose partnership with Richard Rogers 40 years later would
1: lead the musical into its golden age. The Schubert brothers, Sam, Jacob, and Lee, were Russian Jews who emigrated to America as children in 1882. By 1900, they had leased their first New York theater, the Herald Square, and within a few years they would own or control 31 Broadway theaters and 63 more in other cities all across the country. To keep their theaters filled, the Schubert brothers produced more than 500 plays and musicals, Even today, the Schubert organization remains the largest theater owner on Broadway. Last, but certainly
3: not least, Florence Ziegfeld was born in Chicago in 1867, the child of German and Belgian immigrants. Today, more than 80 years after his death, Ziegfeld is still arguably the most famous producer in the history of Broadway. His illustrious name and legendary creation the Ziegfeld Follies, still epitomize Broadway at its most spectacular and glamorous. He mounted his first Follies in 1907 and produced a new edition every year through 1927. These dazzling, extravagant musical reviews showcased the most brilliant performers, the most beautiful showgirls, and the most captivating new hit songs of the day. With his impeccable taste and incredible gift for publicity, Ziegfeld has often been called the greatest showman the theater will ever know.
2: A pretty girl is like a melody that haunts you night and day. Just like the strain of a haunting refrain, she'll start upon
3: all of the top songwriters of the era, Herbert, Kern, McCarthy, and Tierney, contributed numerous songs to multiple incarnations of the Follies. Irving Berlin wrote the music and lyrics for nine editions, including this song, which became the Follies' virtual theme song.
0: She will leave you and
2: then Come back again A pretty girl is just like a pretty girl
3: Perhaps even more than the producers, the star performers of that era can be considered just as important to the creation of the musical as the writers. Musicals were designed and built as showcases for the specific talents and dynamic personas of these stars. Almost all of the shows in those days are what we would call today star vehicles. The biggest star of the era was without a doubt Al Jolson. He was born Asa Jolson in Lithuania and in 1891, at the age of five, he emigrated with his father, who was a rabbi and cantor to New York City. Jolson made his Broadway debut in a show called La Belle Paris in 1911 at the Winter Garden and instantly established himself as a major Broadway attraction. The Schuberts quickly signed him to a seven-year contract and in almost every season from 1912 to 1921, they produced a new musical comedy built around and tailored to Jolson's dynamic talents.
2: California here I come, yeah, right back where I started from where bowers of flowers bloom in the spring. Each morning at dawning birdies sing and everything a sun kiss, miss said, don't be late off. That's why I can hardly wait. Come on, come on. Open up, open up, open up That golden gate, California Here I come
3: The other great star of the era was Fanny Bryce I
0: will letting him Deck in head Deck in his hollow So sure that's why they call me
3: Born on the Lower East Side of New York, her parents were Hungarian-German-Jewish immigrants. She would headline 10 editions of the Ziegfeld Follies and 50 years later be immortalized as the central character in the Broadway and film musical Funny Girl.
0: J.P. E. Cohen, he's the man I adore. Had the noise to tell me he's been married before. Everyone knows that I'm just taking him roads from venue.
1: Comic Edwin was born in Philadelphia. His father was from Bohemia, and his mother was Romanian and Turkish, and came from Istanbul. He made his debut in the Follies of 1914, and worked for both Ziegfeld and the Schubert's in a series of star vehicles for several decades. There are also no recordings of Ed Wynn's Broadway performances,
3: but his distinctive comic persona was captured perfectly when he played Uncle Albert in the original Mary Poppins
2: film. (laughs) I love to laugh, (laughs) loud and long and clear. I love to laugh, (laughs) it's getting worse every year. The more I laugh, (laughs) the more I fill with glee. (laughs) And the more the glee, (laughs) the more I'm a merrier (laughs) be. It's embarrassing. <laughs> the more I'm a merrier me.
0: <laughs>
3: Jolson's greatest rival was Eddie Cantor. Born in 1892 in New York, he was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. He made his Broadway debut in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1917 and would go on to star in 15 Broadway musicals and reviews.
2: Hey, a you new- like I know Susie. Oh, oh, oh what a girl! There's none so classy as this fair lassie. Oh, oh, oh my goodness, what a chassis. I had a mustache as cute as a pup. Susie kissed me, And she burned a darn thing up if you knew Susie. Like I know Susie. Oh, oh what a girl!
3: This unlikely collection of immigrants, Irish, German, and Jews from all over Eastern Europe, many of them starting out destitute, uneducated, and with English as their second language, somehow became the writers, producers, and performers who invented what would soon become America's signature art form, the Broadway musical.
2: Give my regards to Broadway Remember me to Harrow Square Tell all the gang at 42nd Street that I will soon be there. Whisper of how I'm yearning to mingle with the old-time throng. Give my regards to old Broadway and say that I'll be there ere long. Broadway Nation is written and produced
3: by me, David Armstrong. My co-host on this episode was the wonderful Albert Evans. Our recording technician is the indispensable Nick Tarabini. And special thanks to preeminent voice actor Jeff Hoyt and to the entire team at The Voice of Vashon 101.9 KVSH on beautiful Vashon Island, Washington.